Welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton. Our latest issue is out and includes all the usual news, comment, features and reviews. If you don't subscribe, check out our offers at churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. Rebecca Stott's book, In the Days of Rain, tells the story of her family's membership of and escape from the exclusive brethren. Reviewing the book for the Church Times, Malcolm Doney described it as a dark journey into indoctrination, cruelty and control, and a powerful and compelling read. It was awarded the Costa Biography Award and is available in paperback from the Church House Bookshop for 9 99 Rebecca Stott will be in conversation with Malcolm Doney at this weekend's Greenbelt Festival. I spoke to her about the book and started by asking her about how she came to write it. It was when my father died, and that's 11 years ago now, that um, he was struggling. He was diagnosed with cancer and he had only, it was clear he was, only had a few weeks to live. So I um, was conscious of how much he was struggling to try to, to finish his own memoir, which was an account of the years he'd spent in the Brethren and the torments that he'd had there. And oh, it was just the most heartbreaking thing, really, trying to seeing somebody running out of time, trying to write a story that they clearly re- think is the most important thing that they should do in the remi- remaining time. So I uh, went and bought a tape recorder, and he got a few years in, uh, but it was he was clearly really tormented by his memories. And I promised him in the last days that I would try to finish what I thought he was trying to do, which was to draw attention to a stage in the exclusive Brethren history that he had lived through and been complicit in. He'd been one of the sort of what he called the Young Turks, brown shirts, in a really sort of um, what he called the Nazi decade. I mean, he just kept saying, I'm trying to write about the Nazi decade and I can't bear it. It's too painful. It's driving me mad. So I made him a promise and just don't think I'd really understood at that point because I was grieving for him how big a thing this was going to be, how much I was going to have to do to really figure out what his role was in it, what I remembered from my own childhood because I was seven when we left, but I remembered lots really clearly, um, but also the history of the brethren, my own family history. So I had to find a way of weaving all of these things together. And actually what I discovered was so shocking. More and more I thought... What I'm doing is sort of understanding the psychology of totalitarianism, really, and the way in which any group, but sometimes in this case a church group, can turn themselves into a little mini totalitarian state. If we could just go back to, um, you you were born, I think, were you third or fourth generation into the Exclusive Brethren? I was. I was fourth generation. I was, yeah, my grandfather, great-grandfather, joined uh, back in about 1800. So fourth generation... Uh, on one side and third generation on the other. People get mixed up with the Plymouth Brethren because this group, the Exclusive Brethren, uh, now call themselves the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. So it is confusing. But they started out as a group of people in Ireland trying to worship very simply in a very egalitarian way uh, uh, and to turn their, their back on what they saw as the corruptions of the established Anglican Church. So a group of very earnest men, some women in the early stages. And then um, it began to be led by a man called John Nelson Darby. And he increasingly felt they weren't being hardline enough. They weren't being separatist enough. So he insisted on this group living separately from the rest of the world. He said that Satan 
ruled the system. And so in order to be clean, to prepare a clean house for the Lord, they had to keep themselves clean of the world, which meant having nothing to do with unions and uh, groups of any kind. Keep, yeah, just keeping themselves separate from schools and from unions and from the law and living a, a very separatist life. By the uh, 1960s, which is when I was born into it, another leader came in. I think by this point you could probably describe the group as pretty hardline, but quite, you know, just spread across the world. There were 45,000 followers and uh, called the Exclusive Brethren by this point, but quite um, benign, really, compared to what they turned themselves into in the 1960s. In came uh, JT Jr., a new American leader, and I think possibly influenced by the crusades of the crusades of the 60s, Billy Graham. Yeah, yeah. I think partly influenced by Billy Graham, he decided he was going to take the group to a whole new level. You know, now he used the language of crusades and he used the language of sort of a uh, fight to the death with the devil. You know, we have to stamp the devil out, we have to stamp out. And increasingly then, so I guess the key thing here in the 1960s is that he said the brethren had to have no contact with the outside world. So you had to live in a detached house, you couldn't share your drive with neighbours, you couldn't have any contact with family members who were non-brethren. So say, for instance, you had an elderly aunt living with you who wasn't brethren, you would have to leave or get rid of her. If you had a teenager in the house who didn't want to join Brethren Fellowship, you'd have to leave or that teenager would have to go. So, when, you know, there were extreme um, sort of forced confessions. There were um, terrible family breakups. There were suicides. There was a murder. There was a, 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 it's difficult to describe. I remember it. My father remembers it very clearly. But an atmosphere of what my father described as Stalinist Russia. You know, everyone was watching everyone else. Everyone was living in fear of being expelled. If you were withdrawn from, you would have no further contact with any of your family members. If you were shut up, which was another of their uh, enforcement methods, it meant that you would be locked, not locked, you would be expected to stay in a room in your own house and you'd have food brought to you until you were, regard you were regarded as being right with the Lord again. And that meant no contact with any of your family members. People went mad. Uh, there were a lot, there were suicides. And uh, there was terrible mental breakdown. So that was the that was the world that my father had called the Nazi decade. And my father was one of what we called the brown shirts, really one of the people who he uh, who would be expected to enforce the brethren rules. And he died with that on his conscience. He died tormented at how stupid he'd been, uh, tormented at how many bad things he'd done. And, yeah, just trying to document it in order to try to understand it, but particularly to understand why none of them had got out earlier um, or why his, you know, why he hadn't got out earlier. And I mean, central to the theology of the exclusive brethren was, was the rapture, wasn't it, that Jesus could return at any minute? And was this the reason that people needed to be, you know, to write with God because eternity was at stake? Was, was that the thinking, that it was worth this short-term separation and pain? The rapture was, re was a really big part of brethren preaching and brethren ministry, that the rapture literally was imminent. You know, it would be next week, it would be the week after. And you'd hear people saying, you know, of course, if we're still here then, um, regularly, I remember that as a child, 
because people expected. I mean, the atmosphere was very much we're in some sort of waiting room and Christ's going to come in the night. He's going to take us because we're the good people. And of course, it meant that you had to make sacrifices. So also, I remember ministry, you know, a lot of ministry about sacrifice and suffering. JT Jr. would say a great deal about, oh, you know, you think you've suffered. You know, nobody has suffered like Christ has suffered. So there was a kind of collective uh, self-punishment going on. You know, we had to suffer in order to keep a keep clean house. The Lord would be coming any moment and we'd be off. Terrible for a child. You know. Yeah. I mean, there's parts of the book I remember where you're very anxious about whether you're saved and whether you're in the spirit and right with God. Yeah. Yeah. You had to. You had to keep clean, you know, the obset- total obsession with cleanliness, being clean for the Lord. But as a child, I mean, of course, you'd never really know. And I wonder how any of the adults did either, you know, because you couldn't ever know whether you'd done. It wasn't that you had to do lots of things or go around being good. That wasn't part of the Brethren way. But you had to be in faith. You know, you had to have taken Jesus into your heart. You had, certainly had to stick to all the rules. So, and there were an awful lot of rules. I think JT Jr. brought in hundreds of them in the 60s, you know, about how household life, domestic life, family life had to be run, about what women wore, about what men wore, about the way we lived, whether we could have radios. We, we weren't allowed to have radios or television or newspapers, any contact with the outside world. So there was an awful lot of, uh, from my point of view as a small child, I saw an awful lot of rule breaking. My father would preach about radios being, you know, Satan's work. But he had one in the back of his car underneath in the tyre compartment. And he used to listen to the cricket scores on it. (laughs) And we'd see that, you know. So you'd be in a state not just of worry about yourself, whether you were going to be good enough, but of most of the other people around you, you know. So it was a very, it was a very strange thing. What people preached and what they did, it seemed to be different things. And and how did your father come out of of the Brethren? Uh, there was a big scandal in 1970 in which the world leader, JT Jr., came to, to Britain. We always knew it as the Aberdeen incident. He was in his 70s. He was drinking really heavily. There was a lot of drinking in the Brethren, a lot of whiskey drinking. And he would drink from morning till evening. He would drink with a glass of whiskey, half, you know, half full, a tumbler, in, in meetings when, you know, when he did his three-day meetings. But he'd got uh, what people... I've heard people say that he had, by this point, a form of emerging alcoholic dementia, but he was also sort of drunk on power, really, by this point. He was found in bed with a woman in her 30s. He was in his 70s. She was married. Um, He said nothing untoward had happened, nothing impure had happened, but it was witnessed by a whole lot of people uh, in 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 1970 in a bungalow in Aberdeen, he was bundled back straight to New York, and then word went out that God had told him to do this in order to separate the sheep from the goats, the pure from the impure, and that those who believed the scandal would be the ones who were the impure ones. So, you know, the usual stuff you could write, couldn't you? Uh, but as a result, my father and grandfather, who had Scottish connections, so heard the story from one of the witnesses direct decided to leave. Um, There were terrible showdowns in the Brighton meeting room where we used to attend. Um, My mother had five children by this point. 
So it was a big deal. You know, we either had to go completely as a family um, with my grandfather and grandmother and aunts and uncles, or we risked, you know, leaving family members inside that we'd never see again. 250 people of our 400 strong Brighton meeting left that night. And we went to live in the outside world um, overnight. And, and what was that like suddenly going from that very enclosed environment to the outside world? Was it a huge shock? Huge shock. I mean, it's, in a way, the, the the task of the book was, was to try to also, one of the main tasks of the book was to try to convey that sense of bizarre Alice in Wonderland turning of your of your life upside down, you know. So we'd been told Satan was in television sets and in cinemas and in books and in fiction and in music and, you know, everywhere. And suddenly, uh, well, not suddenly, because my father actually formed a sort of splinter movement for about a year and a half before he lost his faith. So it was a year and a half later that we left completely. And that's when he brought home a television set. He took us to see Gone with the Wind. We were going to the cinema all the time. He threw himself into the new world with unbelievable gusto, you know, so he was bringing home. He had never heard the Beatles and he uh, was discovering popular music for the first time. He joined a theatre company as an amateur actor and his new friends who were all in their 20s couldn't believe it. I interviewed them and they said he was like Rip Van Winkle. You know, he was, you have to imagine him, he was six foot four very handsome and very charismatic and he'd come out of this very dark world and into this always light and color so he couldn't get enough of it i mean he was he became addicted to gambling very quickly he was very vulnerable i think you know it, it must have been an enormous he was 33 uh, a you know a young father of five he became addicted to gambling he bought two cars one weekend I describe it in the book as him, it's as if he had his hands stuffed in the sweet jar, you know, um, and he just couldn't get enough of it all. So there was something wonderful about that, about watching that. But there was also something slightly scary about it. By the time I was 16, his gambling problem had become so uh, enormous that he um, had embezzled the family business into nothing. I had gone into receivership and he was arrested for embezzlement and went to prison when I was 16. So, you know, you could see that car crash happening um, all through those years. And yeah, it was heartbreaking, really. I think especially heartbreaking for my mother who had five children and had to try and keep boat uh, afloat while uh, my father was going off the rails. <laughs> and you write in the book when you were age 10 or 11, no longer under the Brethren rules, you go and look up Charles Darwin in an encyclopedia, I think, and you've been told he was spawn of Satan. Yeah, it's some odd things. I mean, it's interesting since I um, since I wrote the book and it came out and won the won the prize. I've had hundreds and hundreds of letters from brethren who lived through similar experiences, and they all describe really odd behaviour, odd obsessions, you know. And for me, it was Darwin because my father and grandfather used to talk about him as the monkey man, and they said he was wicked and especially wicked mouthpiece of Satan. I mean, everything was a mouthpiece of Satan, but Charles Darwin was an especially uh, important one. And I went looking for him because I thought, well, they told me that he used to go around saying that we'd all come from monkeys. And I thought, wow, that's such a weird idea. Remember, we, you know, we'd not had books. So this was a, <laughs> this was like a children's story in a way. Uh, we weren't allowed books. We only had encyclopedias. So I went and looked for him in the, in the family encyclopedia. 
only to find that the pages where Darwin should have been had been razored out, as my father told me. This had happened when the encyclopedias arrived in the 50s. My grandfather had uh, bought these, this set and had taken a razor to those pages. I will not have such wickedness in my house, he said. And of course, that, that created a real... If you, take, if you tell a child that they can't do something and they're curious enough, and I was very curious, a bit of an over-imaginative child, um, I went looking eventually for Charles Darwin in a school encyclopedia some years later, and then it became an obsession. And, you know, here I am in my 50s, and I've written two books on Darwin. And, you know, I go back to Darwin. I think when I read first read Darwin, Darwin's Ideas as a nine-year-old, it was just such a different way of seeing the world. I've been raised to think that everything was either in one camp or the other. You know, there were no shadows. It was all good or evil, everything was really fixed. And here was Darwin saying, you know, that everything was on the move and everything was turning into something else. And there was something incredibly, I mean, it wasn't that Christianity, you know, the Christianity that I'd been fed was odd and Darwin wasn't. They were both odd, but, but there was something more poetic about a Darwinian way of seeing the world and more kind of redemptive in a way than, than what I'd been given. That's interesting. And so, I mean, you, so you went from, you know, extreme fundamentalist Christianity and th- then to more or less sort of what naturalistic, atheistic Darwinism? No, not at all. No, I, when my parents came out and my father threw himself into into the sort of world of, uh, well, hedonism, really, and, and the arts. I mean, it wasn't hedonism for hedonism's sake. He was just, you know, he wanted to memorise all of Shakespeare and act all of Shakespeare uh, I just saw all of that uh, because no one had explained to us otherwise. It felt to me that Satan had got hold of my dad. You know, this was the only logic to it. Um, and so I became extremely puritanical for a few years and re- was reading the Bible all the time. My mother sent me to a group called the Crusaders, which helped. It was nice and kind of militaristic. But eventually my father and I found each other again. Through books, because, of course, I'd been going to school and I'd started to read novels and poetry myself. He saw that. My parents had separated by this point. But we bonded. You know, so he'd be bringing me books and saying, listen to this. And it was just so extraordinary to talk to somebody with such with such hunger. I mean, I think we had a we had a common hunger for understanding the world through books and through poetry it was quite a healthy thing, I think, in all sorts of ways. And he then started to take me to see Shakespeare. I was studying Macbeth on my O-levels. And he decided that we would see every single production of Macbeth in that summer. So there were 13 productions of Macbeth, and we were on the road. <laughs> he would drive me, uh, often speeding, you know, up the M23 to London, and uh, we'd watch, you know, we watched Ian McKellen and Judy Dench twice and so many other productions. And on the road, we would be talking about philosophy, about poetry, about morality, about God. It was an education that, you know, I was honoured to receive as a teenager. And it wasn't just what he thought. <laughs> you know, we argued. It wasn't just me listening to him. We argued about books. We argued about things that we were reading. We argued a lot about gender, actually, because uh, I'd come out of the Brethren really feeling very angry and very, you know, emergent feminist, really. How how dare they tell 
women to be as subject as that, you know, how, how it was also unfair. So I took a lot of that, explored a lot of that with my father in those car journeys, you know, I would rant at him about uh, patriarchy now that I had a word for it. <laughs> and had arguments happened when you were in the bread room? It was very authoritarian and you were told what to think. I mean, was it a relief to be able to debate things? Yeah, it was, yes, because in the brethren you didn't have a chance to particularly as a, as a brethren girl child. You were just just a girl, and nobody asked for your opinions and things. No one even thought you had an opinion, so a lot of the time you were just uh, buttoned up and, you know, watching the women around you. I can just ask how this left your view of the church and, and Christianity in general, because obviously um, it would be understandable if it, if it, you know, put one off for life. I mean, how, how do you now view Christians and, and theology and all of that? Um, I think for uh, a lot of my life, I've been trying to uh, figure, you know, figure out, work out, process what happened to us, you know. And, and I think it, it it was such a negative experience because one of the things I saw there were a lot of very kind people in the brethren, and I'm sure there are now, but um, there were also a, there was a lot of incredibly aggressive macho male behavior and particularly using the scriptures as kind of rapiers you know as as swords to fight with you know so they tended the brethren tended to only sort of concentrate on some uh bits of paul i mean you'd be expected to know the whole bible inside out but paul's letters you know those those were the bits that you heard so you'd hear people you'd hear men and it was always men someone would say something and then it would trumped and sometimes they would use the scriptures without even quoting the words. So they'd say, I think if you read 2 Timothy 2, and it was like one scripture uh, trumping another. So it was incredibly aggressive scripture knowledge that I saw displayed as a child. And it took me a long time to realize that other Christian groups <laughs> didn't do this. I had a period of time in my 30s going to Methodist church and I was married in a Quaker in a Quaker meeting meeting house and I also had a period of time amongst Buddhists. So I would say that I am not an atheist. Um, I probably even wouldn't say I was an agnostic. I think I have a faith but it is still finding its way and it needs to find its way in ways that acknowledge that background, I think. I grew up with an incredibly strong interior dialogue with God, which you never really lose. You know, I mean, that that was a, the biggest part of my interior life, conversation with God, prayer. You know, we did that all the time, um, not just because you were expected to, but because we did. You know, I would, that's the way I was raised. So now... Um, I sort of feel, having written the book, that there's a way in which all of that becomes possible again, um, because I understand myself as being somebody who was raised in a very particular way and, and not a very normal way. Um, and, and the other thing that's been a great gift to me has been the letters I've received from people who wanted to tell me their brethren stories. You know, many of them are people who have found, who want to tell me that they found kinder Christians and kinder churches and that their faith, uh, that they've managed to find a kinder God outside the brethren 
which has sustained them in their life ever since. And that seems to me to be incredibly moving. I mean, I just um, continue to be very moved by it. And on the whole, I think the research has shown that people who leave the Brethren leave any kind of extreme fundamentalist cult are more likely to flourish and recover if they find another faith community of some kind. I find that very interesting. Um, I couldn't possibly say, very few of us could, I guess, explain the nature of my faith or belief system, but I have one, and uh, and I find it easier to say that now after writing the book and talking to people, particularly from church communities, actually, who have asked me questions, who invited me to come and talk, um, incredible generosity and warmth from Christians of all kinds, you know, in response to the book. So I've been very, very touched by that. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.